Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of substance abuse, domestic abuse, and sexual abuse of a child that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a Sunday afternoon in 1978, 32-year-old Judy Knight and her husband worked tirelessly, creating dozens of paper pyramids. They believed in the power of the Great Pyramid of Giza and hoped that any objects placed inside their scaled replicas would be mummified. But so far their efforts had been unsuccessful, and now these paper creations overran their kitchen. Judy, delirious from a lack of sleep and their non-stop work, suddenly burst into peals of laughter. Jokingly, she lifted one of the pyramids above her head and proclaimed that it would magically transform. Suddenly, a bright light gleamed at the other end of the kitchen. In the middle of the beam was a larger-than-life man. Judy was frozen, stunned. She slowly craned her neck back to look up into the man's beautiful ebony eyes, afraid that any hasty movements might shatter the glorious vision. He spoke. I am Ramtha, the Enlightened One. I have come to help you over the ditch. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we're exploring the life of Judy J.Z. Knight, a former cable TV saleswoman turned spiritual leader. In 1988, she founded the Ramtha School of Enlightenment, or RSE. Since then, the Washington-based movement has garnered tens of thousands of followers, including A-list celebrities like Salma Hayek. Next week, we'll dive deeper into the world of RSC as we examine how Jay-Z has managed to maintain the group's success despite accusations of racism and abuse brought against her. We'll also delve into the group's long-standing political ties and its more recent support for the QAnon conspiracy theory. We have all that coming up. Stay with us. Many of us seek greater meaning, hoping to move beyond the mundane events of everyday life. Some find this meaning through a connection to nature or organized religion. Others, like Jay-Z Knight, find this meaning by communicating with supernatural beings. But when such a powerful connection becomes a multi-million dollar business, it can take on a life of its own. Judith Darlene Hampton was born in 1946 in Roswell, New Mexico. When she was two weeks old, her mother Helen invited a woman from the nearby Yaqui tribe to come over. The woman held Judy and, after a moment, proclaimed that she would one day see what no one else could. Despite this early indication of mysticism, Judy's childhood was certainly not magical. While independently verified accounts of Judy's early life are hard to come by, she did write extensively about it in her autobiography, Judy was one of eight children in a family of migrant farm workers. Her mother was a tough, hard-working woman. However, her father was often absent and struggled with severe alcoholism. 
When Judy was two, her parents moved the family to Rockwall in East Texas to work on a cotton farm. They settled into a modest shack that stood alongside the expansive fields. Even in a new town, Judy's father spent long stretches away from the family, out on benders. Mornings on the farm normally began before sunrise, with Helen preparing breakfast for Judy and her siblings. Afterward, Judy typically followed her mother around as she moved from row to row. Judy played among the fields. Life continued at a similar pace for the next two years. But when Judy was four, she experienced back-to-back traumas. First, her older sister Wanda ran away from home. Their father had tried to offer his friend sex with her in exchange for a bottle of whiskey. Rather than stay and risk further abuse, Wanda fled. Then, later that same year, Judy had a similar encounter. One day while playing in the yard with her siblings, Judy accidentally wet her pants. Not wanting anyone to notice, she slipped away to the house. She quickly changed and stashed the soiled evidence. While inside, she heard someone moving about the back room and went to investigate. It was her Uncle Harrison, and like Judy's dad, he also struggled with alcoholism. When Harrison saw Judy walk into the room, he tried luring her over to him. But when she refused, he verbally berated and physically attacked her. Judy fought to get away, but Harrison overpowered her. At the age of four, Judy had been sexually abused by her uncle. But when she shared what happened with her mother, Helen didn't believe her. Instead, she insisted the pain came from a rash. Confused, shaken, and hurt, this traumatic event had a severe impact on Judy. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to a 2018 study published in the European Journal of Psychotraumatology, adolescents who experience sexual abuse as a young child appear more likely to develop a psychiatric disorder than children who are not affected by sexual trauma. It can be difficult to assess the impact of sexual abuse on such small children. The study notes that pre-verbal trauma can be stored as implicit emotional memory, motor memory, and state memory that can be triggered and cause PTSD symptoms. A few months after the incident, Judy's dad reappeared at home. He had run out of money for alcohol and was desperate for more. Brandishing a rifle, he demanded Helen hand over her cash. Helen calmly walked over to the kitchen counter and retrieved a butcher's knife, daring him to come any closer. She told him he needed to choose, once and for all, between his family and alcohol. Judy's dad chose liquor and sped away empty-handed in the family car. Shortly after, Helen found the car parked outside of a local bar. She hotwired it and drove home. For Judy, on that night, Helen became a larger-than-life figure. Helen's strength in the face of chaos undoubtedly inspired Judy to stand up for herself going forward. Not long after, the family moved again, this time to Artesia, New Mexico. Judy's father stayed behind. In Artesia, the family lived in a small apartment, complete with a kitchen with running water and a gas stove, both first for Judy. By now, her older siblings were out of the house and settling into their own adult lives. While five-year-old Judy and her three-year-old brother, Loy, pretended to ride horses and played with their pet June bugs, Helen worked two jobs, as a waitress in a restaurant and as a server at a hamburger stand. 
As the family put down roots in Artesia, Judy's mother decided her kids needed a stable father figure. One of the restaurant regulars, a successful businessman named Bill, seemed persistent in his advances. And not long after Bill courted Helen, they married in 1951. He treated Helen well and fawned over young Loy, but showed little interest in Judy. When the newlyweds went on their honeymoon, they took Loy, but left Judy behind. Over the next few weeks, Judy spent time with a lady named Mrs. Andrews. She introduced Judy to Christianity and organized religion. Judy read the Bible and went to church for the first time. During the worship, revivalists shouted the word of God and prayed for the well-being of sinners among them. As Judy attended more of these services, she worried she might become a sinner if she lapsed in her worship. When Judy's mom and new stepdad returned from their honeymoon, they busied themselves with making arrangements for the family. They moved into a new house and Judy's new room became her own private chapel. After getting settled, they then enrolled Judy at the fancy elementary school in town. Unfortunately, five-year-old Judy stuck out like a sore thumb among the other first graders. Her more affluent classmates were quick to call Judy names and make fun of her tomboy clothing. Judy turned to God for comfort. She spoke to him during tough moments in class or on the playground, initiating an ongoing conversation. Despite being an outcast, Judy longed to share this passion for Christ with others and started offering Bible classes to the neighborhood kids. Her reverence for the evangelical church persisted for the next eight years. Judy prayed regularly and fervently studied the Bible. And over time, Judy's social life improved as she grew more confident in herself and developed her own identity. By the time she was 13, Judy found herself asking questions about the church. As her outward appearance changed, so too did her relationship with her faith. She questioned the biblical story she'd been taught to accept as fact. The notion that there could be light before the sun was created didn't make sense. More concerning, however, was what she saw as God's apparent approval of incestuous rape and other criminal activity by Lot and Esau in the Old Testament. Her Sunday school teacher attempted to explain away these details, but Judy remained unconvinced. The God that Judy spoke to was full of unconditional love and acceptance, but the God that she heard about at church was nothing like this. Instead, he seemed to be judgmental and dishonest. She felt distraught by the opposite pull between God and the church, but she knew where her allegiance lay. And at 13, Judy decided that she'd seen enough. She proudly walked out of the church, declaring that her time there was finished. She was no longer part of an official congregation, but she continued to revere God and pray in private. Little did Judy know, later that year, she would witness something that would truly test her faith, beyond comprehension and not of this world. Coming up, Judy has her first encounter with the world beyond. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, 
I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In 1959, 13-year-old Judy Hampton was a curious eighth grader in Artesia, New Mexico. She had a deep relationship with God and believed that he was an omniscient being who spread love and goodness wherever he went. But her belief in the beyond was about to be thrown for a loop. That year, while at a slumber party, Judy saw something decidedly otherworldly. As they were getting ready for bed, a large, fiery ball of light appeared in the night sky. The strange object emitted an ominous orange glow, lighting up the quiet neighborhood. The planet-like orb began to flash rapidly, and as quickly as it appeared, it vanished into thin air. Judy and her friends didn't know what to make of the event and didn't dare discuss it. But Judy never forgot what happened. It sparked an even greater interest in the unknown. It isn't surprising that extraterrestrial experiences often have a significant impact on those involved. Anthropologist William Dewan wrote in his 2011 dissertation that many abductees have claimed their UFO experiences left them with the gift of newfound psychic abilities, interest in science and philosophy, or implanted objects under their skin. Dewan noted that In such cases, the acceptance of exotic realities and beings allows such experiencers both a reconsideration of past events and a newfound importance in their minds. At 13, Judy already had a profound belief in God and heaven, and being a part of such an unusual event further bolstered her conviction in the existence of divine intelligence, though of an unconventional sort. For the next four years, Judy continued to feed her curiosity of the unknown. She also grew into her womanly identity. She was still a tomboy at heart, routinely spending her time riding horses. But at 17, she also expertly applied makeup and dress to highlight her features. By her senior year of high school, 18-year-old Judy seemed fairly popular and had established a group of good girlfriends. During one of her many slumber parties, the girls gathered at a friend's house. They made a pact that whoever was the first to die would come back and let the others know if there were slumber parties in heaven. They wanted to ensure their special tradition lived on. A year later, in 1965, Judy graduated from high school with great grades and the title of annual queen. Although she'd been accepted to Texas State University, she couldn't afford the tuition. Judy pleaded with her mother and stepfather to help fund her schooling while she worked full-time but they refused. They were strapped for cash. Bill had recently been diagnosed with diabetes and they needed the funds. And besides, Bill thought that girls are a waste of a good education. Still, Judy seemed determined to continue her schooling. Late that summer, she moved to Lubbock, Texas, where a friend of hers was an undergraduate student. 
Shortly after arriving, Judy struck a deal with Lubbock Business College. To pay for her tuition when she wasn't in class, she worked at the local grocery store. She just scraped by, but in the process, she sacrificed her health by often skipping meals. Within a few months, Judy seemed tired and sluggish. Then it all came apart. One day while crossing the street, she fainted. She woke up in a hospital where a doctor told her she was malnourished. He saw her struggling and insisted on treating Judy to some tasty restaurant food instead of the regular hospital meal. Feeling satisfied after her first real meal in months, Judy drifted off to sleep in her hospital bed. But in the middle of the night, she was woken up by the sound of a woman laughing. Judy lifted herself in the hospital bed and peered across the room. A beautiful woman floated in front of the bathroom mirror and emanated an otherworldly light. The apparition smiled, and inside her head, Judy heard a voice say, Judy, I've come to say goodbye. I'm so happy. Trying to process the image, Judy closed her eyes. When she opened them, the woman was gone. The next morning, Judy's mom, Helen, called her to tell her that Suzanne, Judy's close friend from school, had passed away the night before. Suzanne had kept her end of the bargain. With the vision, Judy's belief in life beyond Earth intensified. When Judy was released from the hospital, her doctor instructed her to recuperate at home. Following the orders, Judy dropped out of school and returned to her mom's house in Artesia. Judy felt sad to leave Lubbock, to give up on her education. But the vision of Suzanne consumed her thoughts and feelings. Back home, Judy reconnected with another old high school classmate, Karis Hensley. After just a few weeks of dating, he proposed. Caught off guard, but desperate to move forward in her life and get out of her childhood home, 19-year-old Judy said yes. Within a few years, Judy gave birth to two sons, Brady and Chris. To make some extra money, she opened up a childcare center in the house. However, Judy's life and her marriage were anything but perfect. Karis proved extremely possessive and often verbally abusive. He constantly accused Judy of being unfaithful. He called her names and demanded to always know her whereabouts. All of these issues were only exacerbated by Karis's excessive drinking. Throughout her marriage, Judy found solace in her belief in the world beyond. She continued to have lifelike dreams and visions. The most impactful of these dreams were those in which she was a little girl drowning in a strong current. Judy believed these dreams were about a sibling she'd never met. Her older sister, Bootsy, fell into an irrigation ditch when she was a toddler and died before Judy was born. These dreams bolstered Judy as she contemplated a new direction for her life. And by Christmas of 1970, at 24 years old, Judy had finally had enough of Karis. She packed up her things and took her children to Roswell, New Mexico. There, she found work as a cable TV salesperson. Judy excelled, using her charisma and congeniality to become a top seller. Despite her success, her co-workers liked her and started affectionately calling her Zebra because of her affinity for wearing black and white outfits. Executives at her company noticed Judy's abilities, and just two months after starting, Judy got a big promotion. She transferred to the company's California offices to take over as marketing director for Southern California. There, Judy Zebra was dubbed Jay-Z by her new boss. 
Judy and her boys lived in a nice house in Manhattan Beach. Her troubled marriage with Karis was now a thing of the distant past, and it seemed that the tides of good fortune had turned in Judy's favor. While Judy didn't love the hubbub of California, she enjoyed her job and got along with her coworkers. One day, while walking near the beach, a woman that Judy worked with convinced her to go see a nearby psychic. Inside, the psychic told Judy she would soon leave Southern California and experience three weeks of intense heat. Specifically, she would have fire on her back. After that, she would receive two job offers. One would be where the sky is dark with business, and the other in a place with great mountains, tall pines, and lakes that shine like mirrors unto the heavens. Then, the psychic promised if Judy chose the latter offer, she would meet the one. Judy initially felt confused by the psychic's pronouncements, but had a gut feeling that they might prove to be correct. Miraculously, the day after the reading, Judy got a call from her boss. She was going to Waco, Texas for three weeks to set up a franchise. As if by divine intervention, each one of the fortune teller's predictions soon came true. Exactly three weeks into her time in Waco, Judy's boss called and offered her two choices for her next project. One was in Pennsylvania, and the other was in Washington State. Soon, Judy lived among the pine trees and pristine lakes of the Pacific Northwest. But something was missing. Judy still needed to find the one. Still, Judy thrived. At the end of 1973, the company she worked for went under. Instead of being discouraged, she decided to take that opportunity to take matters into her own hands and started her own cable TV marketing business. At 27 years old, Judy assembled an all-star group of employees and quickly saw success. She had an innate sense about which homes would most likely purchase their service. Judy appeared confident in all her decisions, both personally and in her work. To her, the fact that the fortune teller's prediction had come true so far proved that there was a benevolent force guiding her in the right direction. At this point, her trust in God was as strong as ever. Judy's salespeople were aware of her seemingly mystical abilities, but not everyone bought in. One of her employees, Frank, called it hocus pocus. While Frank firmly denied the existence of God, his aunt believed, and she wanted to meet Judy. When Frank's aunt finally met Judy, she burst into tears of joy. She said that a holy force walked beside her, emanating incredibly powerful energy that was on the same scale as Jesus Christ. Frank's aunt told Judy that this masculine energy was peaceful and benign, but she warned that the force could be extremely draining if Judy didn't take care of herself. The wise woman would prove to be correct. Following her visit, Judy felt extremely weak. Before she could see a doctor, she passed out at her office and once again woke up in a hospital bed. The doctor gave Judy a working diagnosis of severe mononucleosis, and more concerningly, an unknown virus that attacked her white blood cells. She needed to undergo testing and multiple rounds of chemotherapy. At various points throughout her stay at the hospital, Judy prepared for the possibility that she could die. At 27, she wasn't afraid of death. It would bring her closer to God, but she didn't want to cross over to the other side just yet. Her boys needed her. Judy struggled to maintain her strength during chemo treatments. 
She constantly felt nauseous, could barely stand, and eventually lost her hair. Within a few weeks of starting treatment, she fell into a deep depression. Eventually, Judy's condition stabilized and her doctor allowed her to return home. The pain remained as she continued chemo, but she felt relieved to be with her boys. A few weeks later, her co-worker Frank asked Judy to accompany him and his fiancée to a revival outside of Seattle. It seemed that Frank had finally found God, and he hoped the service would help Judy recover from her illness. But Judy refused. Ever since her dramatic exit at 13 years old, she hadn't set foot in a church. But Frank persisted. In the end, Judy agreed to accompany them, if only to appease Frank and his newfound religious fervor. Little did Judy know that she would have yet another divine experience, one that changed her life forever. Coming up, Judy is miraculously healed, and she finally meets the One. Now back to the story. In 1974, hundreds of worshipers gathered in a huge tent outside of Seattle, Washington. 28-year-old Judy Hensley had seen all of this kind of religious pageantry before and was skeptical straight away. She didn't want to hear about Satan and sinners. She knew that God was full of light and love, and she didn't have any interest in repenting. But Frank insisted that Judy allow the preacher to try and heal her. Against her better judgment, she acquiesced. She approached the altar, issuing a stern warning to the preacher that she didn't want to hear anything about Satan. Before the preacher got out more than two sentences, the top of the tent lit up with the flash of electric blue light. According to Judy, the blue streak moved down the tent and went directly through her body. While there are no independent accounts of this event, Judy claims that the congregation erupted into chaos. However, she felt overcome by a wave of serenity. Immediately, Judy noted a difference in her body. In the moments that followed, she believed that she had saved herself by trusting in God. To confirm her suspicions, the next day she went to the doctors to run some blood tests. They showed that Judy was healthy, as if she'd been cured overnight. Her doctor was baffled, but Judy seemed unfazed. Whatever she had experienced at the service had awakened something inside of her. Over the next four years, Judy continued to run her company, but took a step back from the daily operations. Instead of pouring all of her energy into work, she relished in the beauty of existence and spent time with her sons. She decided it was time her boys had a male figure in their lives. Judy prayed for God to deliver a man that could provide her family with love and support. Her prayers were answered later that year. One evening in January of 1977, Judy went out to a bar with some girlfriends. There she met Jeremy, a charming dentist with a goofy sense of humor and a deep belief in God. Their relationship progressed quickly as they bonded over a mutual love of nature. As they hiked and fished with Judy's sons, she knew that this was the man she'd been praying for. The pair were married in August of 1977. The following February, Judy and Jeremy were at a dinner party where they were introduced to the concept of pyramid power by a friend. The couple, both believers in the supernatural, was fascinated by the claims that by placing an object inside of a scaled replica of the Great Pyramid of Giza, it would be mummified. 
and so they set out to test the power of the pyramid for themselves. By Sunday afternoon, their quest for pyramid greatness had devolved into exhaustion-fueled giddiness. Judy stood amongst crumpled-up failed pyramids, laughing hysterically. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, a mysterious light appeared, and a giant man emerged from the center of the beam. The being was made of pure light. His body emanated an incredibly bright and powerful glow, and his lush robe radiated with a purple-colored brilliance. Suddenly, he spoke. I am Ramtha, the Enlightened One. I have come to help you over the ditch. During this initial encounter, Ramtha assured Judy that the Father in Heaven knew about her and loved her greatly. Ramtha explained that the so-called ditch consisted of limitation and fear. And for Judy to get over this hurdle, she needed to move out of her house within the next five days, or she would risk putting her family in harm's way. Ramtha had already prepared a great white structure that would serve as her new home. He said that he would send a messenger to help Judy find the dwelling. When Judy came out of her trance-like state, she told Jeremy what she'd just seen. She was terrified, but Jeremy insisted this holy being was benevolent and had been sent to them by God. Later, Judy prayed for a sign indicating that Ramtha could be trusted. If she didn't receive this indication, she would go about her life and try to forget her strange meeting. The day after her encounter, Judy went for a drive to clear her mind. She had stopped in a parking lot when a voice in her head said to enter a real estate office in front of her. Inside, she met with an agent who showed her the large white houses for sale in the area. Their excursion ended with Judy writing an $85,000 check for the property. Jeremy appeared supportive of Judy's new connection with Ramtha. His faith in God helped him to believe in the seemingly supernatural situation they were now in. He was ready to move to the new house right away. Then, on the day of the move, Judy and Jeremy received confirmation of Ramtha's legitimacy. He told her to move within five days or risk harm. On the fifth day, someone broke into their old house. From that point on, Judy was fully invested. She and Ramtha continued to speak through visions. He told her he was the, quote, Great Ram, a powerful Lemurian warrior who lived 35,000 years ago in Atlantis. British zoologist Philip Sclater first proposed the concept of Lemuria in 1864. Sclater theorized that an ancient land bridge and or continent that he called Lemuria had sunk into the Indian Ocean similar to mythic stories of Atlantis. But even as she learned more about Ramtha, Judy still had questions. To better understand her connection with Ramtha, Judy sought out help from a local pastor. The receptive pastor explained that she was likely a medium, the channel through which Ramtha appeared on Earth. This introduced Judy to the idea of spiritism. Modern spiritism in the U.S. has been around since the 1850s, Spiritism is widely understood as the belief that the human personality continues to exist after death and can communicate with the living through the agency of a medium or psychic. Swiss psychology professor Théodore Flournois and British author Harroward Carrington explain this idea in their 1911 book, Spiritism and Psychology. 
They write that the immediate reaction to seeing a spiritual channeling is usually skepticism, but after witnessing more instances of communication with the supernatural world, and perhaps even experiencing a supernatural event oneself, it becomes easier to accept. As for Judy, she began to trust Rampa the more their communication continued. By 1978, she regularly channeled Ramtha. At this point, he was more than a spiritual teacher. He was also Judy's financial advisor. He was the first one to suggest that she charge attendees $100 to hear her speak. In December of 1978, 32-year-old Judy gave her first paid Ramtha dialogue. During these conversations, she reportedly transformed physically. Her body became larger, and her voice grew deeper as she channeled Ramtha. Through the voice of Ramtha, she offered guidance to curious attendees who felt lost in their lives. Somehow, during these sessions, Ramtha seemed to know the details of their lives and the thoughts in their minds. Word spread in the area about her abilities, and soon, Judy was in high demand. She had no time for her cable business and seemingly dissolved the company. Instead, she put her assets into her new venture with Ramtha. Clients flew her out to New York and New Jersey to channel Ramtha for them. She hit new levels of exposure when she had her first magazine cover story in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Despite Judy's increased publicity and steady revenue from her dialogues, she wasn't happy at home. She felt that Jeremy was only interested in speaking to her as Ramtha, who advised Jeremy on his dental business and discussed the mystical world with him. Judy felt she was relegated to second place behind Ramtha. Seeking an escape, Judy returned to horseback riding, one of her favorite childhood hobbies. She became interested in buying and selling Arabians, a highly prized species in the equestrian world. Through this new venture, Judy met 24-year-old Jeff Knight. They had an immediate connection. And it wasn't very long until 34-year-old Judy had left Jeremy and moved in with Jeff. She still continued channeling Ramtha, reading the minds of astounded attendees, and spreading a message of love and light. As she became more comfortable channeling in front of others, Judy articulated his message with even more clarity. She also became more adept at transforming physically when channeling Ramtha. According to Judy's accounts, during one dialogue, she was able to carry a 200-pound man to his chair and heal his pain, all in one fell swoop. During the early 1980s, Judy slowly gained more of a following as guests who attended her dialogues shared stories of their experiences with interested friends. Then, in 1985, Judy made her biggest splash yet. With an appearance on the nationally syndicated Merv Griffin Show, she reached her largest audience to date. Soon, Judy established herself as a leader of a New Age spiritual movement. With the profits from her appearances, Judy purchased an 80-acre property in Yelm, Washington. There, she built a 12,800-square-foot chateau. For a time, she and Jeff bred Arabian horses and built a 15,000-square-foot arena to showcase them in. But that didn't last long. Judy had her mind focused on other business. Eventually, she sold the horses and remodeled the arena. She needed to prepare for her biggest venture yet building a religious empire, one that could give her an incredible amount of power and influence, more power than even Ramtha could hope for.
Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Judy Knight's story. We'll see what happens after she establishes the Ramtha School of Enlightenment and brings hundreds into the fold. For more information on Judy Knight and RSE, amongst the many sources we used, we found Judy's autobiography, A State of Mind, My Story, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Natalie Pertsovsky, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.